You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning or good afternoon for our overseas viewers. On behalf of the U.S. Institute of Peace and the Resolve Network, it's my pleasure to welcome our speakers and our viewers to our virtual conversation today, Understanding Career Foreign Fighters. I hope all of you all watching at home are safe and healthy and doing okay during this global pandemic. My name is Leanne Erdberg-Stedman and I am USIP's Director for Violent Extremism. Here at the Institute of Peace, we see violent extremism as a global centuries-old problem. Despite the countless lives lost and trillions of dollars spent, violent extremism continues to evolve and spread and be a facet of our society. Addressing this complex global phenomenon with roots and local context continues to be a top priority for USIP. We believe that any real resolution of violent extremism requires a peacebuilding approach. We see that peacebuilding has a role to play in preventing individuals from finding common cause with violence. And we see that peacebuilding has a role to play in enabling those who are currently part of violent groups to abandon those organizations and perhaps find a peaceful future that's not solely defined by their past. So as part of our work at the Institute, we see that research is crucial to addressing violent extremism. It can uncover dynamics that drive people to join terrorist groups. It unpacks the numerous complex reasons for why people adhere to violence and violent groups. And it shines light on local and socioeconomical and political dynamics. Research from a multiplicity of focus areas and those that employ rigorous methods must be part of our game plan to offer workable insights onto violent extremism. It's why we're proud to house the Resolve Network here at the Institute and build upon our decades-long legacy of deep engagement in conflict-afflicted societies. Resolve, for those of you who are new to our organization, is a global consortium of researchers and research organizations and practitioners and policy experts who are all committed to our mission of better research, informed practice, and improved policy on violent extremism. So today's topic, understanding and addressing the foreign fighter phenomenon, particularly a wave of foreign fighters that join violent extremist groups in Iraq and Syria, has become a key policy priority in recent years. And while many policy discussions have sought to understand why individuals travel outside of their home countries to join armed groups, much less is known about those who do not return, but instead go on to join new groups and start new wars. So we're delighted to host this discussion today with the three authors of a recent Resolve Network report, Career Foreign Fighters, Expertise Transmission Across Insurgencies. This report presents their pioneering original research that examines this phenomena of career foreign fighters. And I'm really excited to hear from all of them today um, to tell us exactly what the security threat that these individuals pose and more about those who participate in violent extremism across multiple conflicts and groups. Today's conversation, because it is virtual, we're really encouraging you to actively engage with us on our YouTube channel, on Twitter. So please, during the event, submit your questions for the speakers using the YouTube chat feature. You can also submit um, join questions on Twitter with the hashtag careerforeignfighters. We'll collect questions throughout the duration of the event, so please send them in at any time. 
To kick off today's discussion, I'm delighted to introduce our esteemed speakers and our moderator for today's event, Dr. Colin Clark. Dr. Clark is a senior research fellow at the Sufan Center, an assistant teaching professor in the Institute for Politics and Strategy at Carnegie Mellon University, and a member of Resolve's Research Advisory Council. He's also an associate fellow at the International Center for Counterterrorism, The Hague, ICCT, a senior non-resident fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, FPRI, and a member of the network of experts on the global initiative against transnational organized crime. Dr. Clark has over a decade of experience examining terrorism and insurgency and criminal networks. And in 2019, he published the book, After the Caliphate, The Islamic State and the Future Terrorist Diaspora. Colin will moderate a conversation with the report's authors, starting with Chelsea Damon, a researcher and pursuing a PhD in justice, law and criminology in the School of Public Affairs at American University. She is an associate fellow at the Global Network on Extremism and Technology and the executive producer of The Loopcast, a podcast on national security and information security. Next, we have Janine DeRoy van Biederzijn, who is a researcher at the Institute of Security and Global Affairs, ISGA of Leiden University, and also a research fellow at the International Center for Counterterrorism, The Hague, ICCT. Lastly, we have Dr. David Mallet, who is an associate professor of public affairs at American University. Dr. Mallet is the author of Foreign Fighters, Transnational Identity in Civil Conflicts, and the co-editor of Transa Transnational Actors in War and Peace, Militants, Activists, and Corporations in World Politics Affairs. Dr. Mallet, like Dr. Clark, is also a Resolve Research Advisory Council member. With that long introduction, I'd like to thank everybody, and it is my pleasure to hand this over to Colin. Thanks so much, Leanne. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us today, and thanks so much to USIP uh, and Resolve. Uh, as Leanne mentioned, I'm a member of the, the Research Advisory Council, and it's been a real pleasure to get to work more closely with my colleagues at Resolve over the past year and a half. Uh, we've been doing some really interesting work together, and I look forward to doing uh, more interesting work uh, in the coming months and years. Uh, I'd, I'd like to also just give a special shout out to the authors of this paper. Um, if you haven't read it yet, I urge you to. Um, it's an excellent paper and there's some really interesting findings in there. Uh, career foreign fighters, expertise transmission across insurgencies. So uh, a lot of interesting details uh, packed into, into this paper. Uh, it's a really important study and it sheds lights on several important variables and factors, uh, including, you know, who becomes a foreign fighter, a career foreign fighter, and why. Uh, and I think it's worth pointing out the attachment to current policy dilemmas, right? So if you're wrestling with uh, and working on current policy issues, this is the paper you want to read, not only in terms of re reintegration, but rehabilitation, recidivism, uh, and repatriation. So it kind of hits the mark across all these different areas and really informs what we're talking about uh, when we look at what's happening across the world not only in Europe, uh, but elsewhere. Um, so with that said, uh, I'll get the discussion going and, and I'll kick things off. And I'd like to uh, ask David, uh, my first question is, uh, just so we're all on the same uh, level here and, and foundation, can you explain to us what is a career foreign fighter? Uh, and moreover, why do they matter? Sure, well, thanks Colin and thanks Leanne. Also, thank you everyone else for, for tuning in today. Career foreign fighters are a new category or a new distinction, uh, but they're really, it's a continuation of things that we've been researching for a while. 
So just to get everybody on the same page um, with definitions, foreign fighters are individuals who travel to civil wars, who travel to conflicts in other countries where they had not been resident, were not perhaps, perhaps a citizen before, they've traveled to somewhere else. So it's not just international terrorists, it's people who join insurgent groups. And career foreign fighters are individuals who join more than one, which is something that hasn't really been studied before. We found, which we'll talk more about as we go along today, but we found that there are people who join as many as six different insurgencies in six different countries. And so they're, obviously they're not usual. Um, I can say just, just quickly that career foreign fighters or, or foreign fighters in general are people who join insurgencies, join rebel groups exclusively. So we're not looking at people who join foreign legions, foreign military volunteers. We're not looking at mercenaries specifically. What we found is that there are people who have been foreign fighters for different causes throughout history. You can think of volunteers in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, you can look at some of the, the fighters in Ukraine today as well. And a lot of times, because they're joining rebel groups, they're, they don't have the resources to compensate them. They tell them, we, in some cases, we can't pay you up front. You have to fight to, to defend your people. You're not, you're not here for the money. Um, obviously, in some cases, there are, there are types of rewards offered. Uh, ISIS, in particular, was known for, for paying you know, well compared to other jihadi groups. Um, but we don't really get into the questions of pay because it, it gets complicated. You know, groups that tell people we can't pay you still feed them, still give them some form of compensation. So we, we typically sidestep this question of, you know, do you have to be paid to be considered a mercenary versus a foreign fighter? Um, but beyond, and we're also uh, the term foreign terrorist fighter, FTF, has been used a lot over the last several years by practitioners. Uh, in particular, foreign fighter is more of the, the academic research term. Uh, so one question people might have is, is there a difference between foreign fighters and foreign terrorist fighters? And for the purposes of this study, no. Under international law, you're, you're an FTF if you're basically a member of Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. And I'm, I think that pretty much everyone in our study happens to be a member, happened to have been a member at some point, of one of their affiliates. So for the purposes of this study, that doesn't make much difference either. And we're only looking at jihadis. People have been jihadi foreign fighters, obviously. I mean, I in particular have looked at people who've joined other groups as well. But when we were developing the study, you know, it, it could have taken us all over the place. How far back do you go? Who do you include? So we're only looking at people who've joined jihadi groups as foreign fighters since the 1980s. And this particular group, I should say, uh, of course, there are thousands of for jihadi foreign fighters since the 1980s. But in this particular study, we actually only ran across dozens who counted as career foreign fighters. So it seems like a small group, but it turns out they have a really outsized influence. Fascinating. And, and I think that number would probably surprise people, right? But it's based on the parameters uh, of what you laid out. And so I think that's a really important distinction. I, I think it's also really important to differentiate between mercenaries. Uh, and mercenaries are in the news a lot uh, more recently. If you look at the conflict in Libya, uh, Wagner Group and some of these other entities. And um, at Carnegie Mellon, I'm, I'm lucky enough to teach a course called The Future of Warfare. So we talk a lot about how a range of violent non-state actors um, figure into, into conflicts. Uh, but I think it's really important to be precise in our definitions as you were um, in, in this paper. My next question kind of dovetails on that and it's for Janine. Can, can you talk a little bit about the implications that foreign fighters have for conflicts? So specifically, do they change the dynamics? I mean, why are we so interested in this phenomenon in particular? Yeah, thanks, colleague. I think that's a very important point. Uh, David already said it. They have an outsized impact on the conflict. 
And this is one of the main findings and main topics of our whole paper. So we can also endlessly uh, discuss this, but it comes down very simply to the fact that they are very experienced. So these are people that have already fought in conflicts. Um, they have a particular legitimacy, but they also bring with them certain skills that they develop over the course of these conflicts. So you can imagine it's very different if a first time foreign fighter, for instance, from the Netherlands or any other country comes to a conflict without any experience. Usually these people don't even know how to hold a gun. They might hold it the other way around. So if these people have already a lot of experience in previous conflicts, they can kind of give a boost to um, new and emerging conflicts. And it's not only their battlefield skills, but another very important topic is, of course, also their um, ideological impact. So they uh, might have, well, they, they might have built these transnational networks and they also build on certain doctrines. They develop their uh, thinking about conflict. So they bring in a lot of different expertise, both practical, ideological, but also in terms of um, well, leadership skills. One of our findings is that a lot of these career foreign fighters actually rise through the ranks and every next conflict, some of them, you see them rise through these ranks and they actually end up in more executive positions. So if we look at the whole foreign fighter uh, phenomenon and we see conflicts where a lot of these career foreign fighters go to, that should be really a warning sign, I think, in terms of the potential impact they might have. Yeah, I think that was one of the most interesting findings uh, from the from the paper for me was the leadership aspect and that's something that um, even if you have a hunch about that it's different than proving it empirically so i think you know, that's something that uh, really piqued my interest when i read this paper for the first time uh, i, I want to just follow up on one thing you said in terms of uh, the ideological impact that career foreign fighters can have can you explain a little bit about how they may or i guess the, to take a step back can, foreign, can career foreign fighters that bring a certain ideology switch or sway the kind of course or nature of a conflict? Um, there's been a lot of discussion in the past about what impact foreign fighters had, uh, career foreign fighters might have had in Chechnya. And I think maybe there are some myths that are out there that, that might be dispelled, but just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the importance of ideology there. Yeah, thanks. That's a very good point. Well, I think it can go both ways. So I think we should also always be careful, like not to overestimate the impacts. Uh, I think we clearly see that they have an impact, but as you also point out, it's not, um, it's not a given that when career foreign fighters enter, uh, for instance, we always see that the, uh, for instance, the, the tactics become more severe. So it, it's, it's a bit of mixed evidence. We also discussed it in the literature review. Um, there are some cases where we really see that once these well-known fighters um, who also know more about targeting tactics, for instance, when they enter, they can give this boost to groups moving towards more extreme ideas or more extreme tactics, but in other cases it might not. So indeed it's good to, to be a bit careful there and not say that it's only uh, a one-directional effect. But yeah, of course they do bring in these expertise and uh, this expertise and they do bring in um, the networks and they might have transnational links. So we clearly see in, in many conflicts that when these foreign fighters come in, and especially these experienced foreign fighters, uh, they do lead to some kind of a more, um, yeah, more, more extreme ideology or more severe uh, implications. Yeah. Thank you. I think that's a, an important clarification. And I think 
um, there's probably still a little bit more work left to be done on the, on that topic. You know, there's a number of questions that stem from that, uh, which would be interesting for researchers and uh, certainly graduate students to to pursue and collect data on. Um, speaking of of collecting data and and case studies, my my next question is for Chelsea. Um, you know, in the course of the research I did for for my book, one of the most exciting things is when you find something that might be counterintuitive or kind of cuts against conventional wisdom or just strikes you as strange or something that you didn't know. Was, was there anything about the case studies and the particular research that you did um, that was surprising, that kind of caught you off guard or um, maybe was a bit unpredictable? That's a really great question. And going through the multitude of sources, including biographies, accounts of individuals' experiences in multiple conflicts, there are a lot of different stories that pop up. Of course, in the report, we show three different case studies of executive career foreign fighters, as we're calling them. And each person has differences in what took place during their time in the theater of conflict as a career foreign fighter. Um, I guess some of the interesting things that I found across multiple case studies was this idea of individuals not just going from conflict to conflict and joining different groups, but along that path and through their career, as we're calling it, they actually tended to go home at periods of time between conflicts, which I found really interesting because a lot of us might think that if you are a foreign fighter, fighting for a terrorist organization overseas, you might want to avoid going back to your home country. But a lot of individuals actually went back, had a stint back home, and then entered another conflict. And each case study showed different reasonings for this. Some of it was um, taking a break from a theater of conflict. Other times it was also uh, making connections back home. We did have a handful of individuals in the data set that were Saudi and um, they used a lot of resources back home or individuals that had resources to the global jihadist movement elsewhere using Saudi as, as a, a platform, I guess, to uh, gain more skills or more conflict connections elsewhere. Another thing that was very interesting from some of the firsthand accounts was looking at how some of the career foreign fighters actually had a very hard time assimilating back into normal regular life. So they had spent time in a number of conflicts. And this is something we also see with individuals that are um, veterans in militaries where because you're so used to being in a certain environment that is full of conflict, it can be very, very hard to go home and assimilate back into normal life. So some individuals actually really needed to go back to a theater of conflict, which I think for policy implications, that's something very interesting to think of, that we can look at issues that our veterans and veterans overseas as well in other countries face and also apply this to career foreign fighters. Fascinating. While you were talking, I was thinking of the exact same thing, actually, you know, heading home for, for a little R&R, &R, rest and recuperation before going out uh, for the next tour deployment. Um, the fact that career foreign fighters were able to return to their countries of origin uh, or their homes before heading out to the next conflict, does that tell us anything about the ease 
with which foreign fighters can traverse international borders? Uh, does it speak to a porosity of borders? Does it speak to connivance with, with actual governments that are kind of agreeing to look the other way? Or is it just really poor counterterrorism defenses? Maybe a little bit of, of all of those. I think that's also another difficult question to unpack in the sense that there are individuals in our data set that started their career as a Sunni jihadist in the 1980s. So Afghanistan was a lot of their first experiences in the conflict zone and fighting the jihad. And if you look at that time period, foreign fighters weren't um, as much of a security concern as they are now with the conflict in Syria. So we have to take that into consideration when considering open borders and countries allowing people to come in and out because it was a different time and we didn't have the same potentially security risks that we think of now when it relates to foreign fighters. I think on the other hand, there are certain countries that um, did not mind what was taking place in Afghanistan at the time. A lot of them also supported the idea of the jihad or spreading, uh, the idea of not spreading, but the idea of protecting the Muslim community, the ummah. So it's a really hard question to unpack. Nowadays, we of course see lots of security conversations and measures being taken to be put in place when it comes to foreign fighters, especially with the Syrian conflict. So that question is, like I said, hard to unpack. And it's also depending on the time and the current situation with the past situation. Yeah, and if, if anybody's had uh, you know, the pleasure of reading Heghammer's great new work, The Caravan, you can see the difference in, in the way some foreign fighters were considered um, during the, the initial Soviet-Afghan war and, and today compared to Syria. Um, it brings me to my next question, which I think is for anyone that wants to answer it um, within the group, which is now that foreign fighters are considered in such a different light, what have been local reactions to, to career foreign fighters? Um, and and what, what factors impact these kind of local reactions? You know, whether it's North Africa, Southeast Asia, how do local communities and local governments uh, think about it when career foreign fighters show up and, and attempt to kind of ingratiate themselves in what was uh, previously a kind of parochial type conflict with local grievances. How does that change the equation? So looking at the case studies, it, once again, it's a mixed bag. On the onset, some conflicts and individuals that went to the conflict and then the local community had um, positive it responses initially when people were coming to help with their, their local conflict. There are other times when the longer foreign fighters were in the environment or more individuals were coming that there became some tensions within the local community with these foreign fighters that joined their local insurgency. And this can be for a number of reasons whether it's ideological or also uh, there is that known fact that sometimes foreign fighters that enter a conflict do not have skills initially so they can actually hinder the conflict or be burdens to the locals that know the region know what they're fighting for um, another issue that came up was the ideological aspect so you had sunni jihadists coming into 
different conflicts and also traveling from conflict to conflict as a career foreign fighter. And with them, they did bring ideological leanings that might not have fit in with the local population. And that did create some tensions, which we did see. And there are also discussions in biographies of career foreign fighters that discuss this issue of trying to bring in the ideological aspect, but not maybe going so strong at first because it can hinder the relationship with the local community. So some really important points there. And I think too often we almost assume that foreign fighters uh, are a force multiplier and we don't think enough how they can actually be a burden um, on, on the conflict or on some of the primary groups fighting there. Um, it's, it's come up in some of the conversations I've had with other scholars where we've kind of done this you know, thought exercise of, well, why, you know, given how active Irish Americans were in the conflict in Northern Ireland, why didn't we see foreign fighters in that conflict? Um, you know, and, and one of the strongest you know, hypotheses is they weren't wanted. We'll take your money, but we, you know, you're gonna kind of muck things up if you get involved. Um, so thanks, but no thanks. You, know, you can stay over where you are instead of drawing more attention. Um, I wanted to throw something out there again for, for anyone that wants to jump in on this, but um, let's say that a new battlefront opened up and, and similar to Syria, you know, uh, 2012 to 2014-ish, where it was really drawing legions of foreign fighters from across the globe. Let's say something happens in Libya where that conflict goes in that direction, where it's really beginning to pull in larger numbers. Um, or, you know, pick your spot, your hotspot. West Africa could be Afghanistan again, could be somewhere in Southeast Asia. What, what really draws or what determines career foreign fighters going to a certain spot? So how are they linked to kind of different conflicts? Um, and what would lead a career foreign fighter to, you know, pack up and head to Libya or to say, you know, I'll, I'll pass and I'll kind of wait for the next opportunity. Are there factors that drive uh, career foreign fighters to go to a place? One assumes it's not just looking for any conflict, but there have to be certain factors that make it more or less attractive. Maybe I can say a few words about that. And David, you want to uh, add to that then? Um, so, for instance, what you've also seen in the past in case of uh, Afghanistan, a lot of these fighters, when the Soviet Union had left the country, they were really looking also for a new opportunity to fight their jihad. So I think it's a mix, of course, of what is going on in the place where they're still uh, based. Is there still a jihad, a proper jihad they can fight? Because we saw in Afghanistan, it really um, escalated more into infighting. So when in the early 1990s, there was a new conflict in Bosnia erupting, for a lot of these fighters, it was also an opportunity to show that they were again doing kind of a real um, jihad and they could relatively easily travel there. So it also depends on the situation in the country where they're based now. Of course, in addition to whether or not a new conflict has certain uh, elements that might attract it. So it's, it's also kind of opportunity based to some extent. David, you want to add to that? Yeah, thank you. Um, it's funny. I'm actually I'm working on a study right now that's under review, so I'm not going to I'm not going to say too much about what conflict conditions there might be. It might be the case that certain conflict conditions draw foreign fighters uh, more than others. But I think just to follow on what we've been saying, it, it's clear that networks matter. They matter not only for recruitment but also for the transit of foreign fighters from one location to another. You don't see foreign fighters crop up in significant numbers in any conflict without 
the group infrastructure in place. It's not just a, a case of individuals self-traveling uh, and, and bringing friends and snowballing in any of these cases. So and a lot of it, I think it's a matter of they follow the, they follow the leadership, they follow the organization. And that's why some of the experienced individuals who have gained respect, who have gained these connections, are particularly instrumental in getting other foreign fighters to follow them. One thing about the career foreign fighters that we've seen is that they are really revered for bringing what are seen as best practices, right? They, they in some cases, go to train other groups or they write manuals for them, saying, well, here's what we learned in the last war. Um, so there's always a conflict, right? There's always a conflict between foreign fighters and locals who they're supposedly there to protect, no matter what happens, ironically, right? Um, but th there's always, I think, there's some competitive edge that the experienced ones have. They, they have this uh, cool appeal. Um, Jasper Schwamp has, has done his dissertation work on this, that there's this sort of this, this appeal that, that the almost sex appeal that the foreign fighters have, that they're seen as being exotic and, and, and more effective and maybe not corrupt like some local fighters are, so people want to join them. Um, and they can elbow aside the others. And actually, I think this ends up shaping our understanding of the value of foreign fighters. As Janine said before, there are some people who show up first-timers who don't know which way to point the gun. That's not the people we're talking about. Most foreign fighters end up being used as cannon fodder. They don't survive. It's, it's, it's the few that make it, that somehow become respected, that can show up in countries they've never set foot in before and suddenly be accepted in some of these cases as the leaders of the organizations. And that happens because they actually do bring added value. So, you know, as social scientists, we like to have cause and effect. Do foreign fighters hurt? Do they help? And it's much more nuanced than that. Most of them probably are burdens. Most of them do get into conflict. But some of them really have learned how to work the system or have connections that are too valuable for locals to pass up, so they don't. And in those cases, those individuals actually do assume the leadership roles and probably do direct other people where to go. Uh, so if we're talking about bleed out from Syria, you probably follow somebody you see as an experienced leader, as an experienced fighter, and where they go, they're probably likelier to draw others with them. All great points, and I, I think especially a very strong point that you led with there, which is that networks matter. Um, and, and you know, if you've read some of Michael Kenny's great work on Mujahideen and, and militants from the United Kingdom, um, looked at some of the Sharia four networks in Europe, these fac facilitation networks that help people get from one place to the other, perhaps encourage them. Uh, help provide funding to get from point A to point B. Um, and, and although Syria is the most recent iteration of some of these conflicts, um, it may end up being a fairly watershed conflict that gives birth to, to career foreign fighters for the next decade or longer. Um, I'd like to kind of flip my last question um, on its head and, and ask about how communities can avoid becoming the next location for career foreign fighters. So if I am a state that doesn't want to attract uh, these individuals, either because I think that they're going to destabilize my state further, because they're going to link up with uh, existing militant groups, um, and, and, you know, uh, which leads to spillover violence and all sorts of other negative second order effects. What can I do um, outside of kind of, you know, these high level talking points that we often see um, of, you know, counter corruption, establish the rule of law, promote good governance. Yeah, no kidding. We know those are the things we should be doing, but how do we actually operationalize that um, at a policy level? And, and what would you say to, to that end? Again, for anyone that, that wants to weigh in there. I mean, the hard answer, I guess, is, is I'm not sure how much, again, without going, you know, with staying in the scope of this project, I'm not sure how much um, 
local governments can do because once the conflict has already started, it seems like you know the, the the foreign fighter networks will show up in the most opportune places. I mean, one question that's interesting to me, you mentioned before why some cases like Northern Ireland, why you don't get ethnic diasporas. A lot of it, I, I think it's, it's pretty well established that these groups recruit people. They say, hey, we can't pay you, but there's this really dire threat to your people and you have to show up and do something. And I, I've argued before that you maybe don't see that in a lot of ethnic conflicts because there isn't this credible threat of genocide against a group. Um, but the flip side of that is that when you do get oppression of civilian populations, when you do get harsh counterterrorism tactics, it makes it easy for a lot of these groups to put out that propaganda and say, look, here, here's proof. Um, they use gendering a lot. So they say, you know, you, you have to be here. The, the women are, are suffering. You know, a young guy like you has to do something about it. So one thing is just, I guess, good public relations skills are, are, are you know, go hand in hand with good governance. Um, don't create these narrative talking points for the radical groups you know, by, by engaging in activities that they can point to as, as justification for the necessity to intervene. Uh, that's, that's just creating the, the selling points for the groups when that happens. Um, beyond that, there are obviously there are more basic governance and state capacity issues that matter. Um, you know, groups, when groups challenge the state, it sets the conditions for insurgencies, for foreign fighters. But the question of which uh, conflicts are gonna be drawn, drawn points, I guess I should say, for career foreign fighters, it's a little bit harder to answer. I, I think this is one of the, the interesting things to me about this project is it actually raises, you know, it raises some new questions. One thing that I thought was interesting that we uncovered, we were only looking at people who joined multiple groups as foreign fighters, not really looking at people who'd been domestic militants before that. But what we did find was some people had been domestic militants before becoming career foreign fighters, and some people became terrorists after having been career foreign fighters, but these weren't the same groups. So the people who were causing trouble at home first, it didn't seem like they were going abroad for training and then coming back. There were other people who were taking up the cause, which makes sense if they were radicalized, but why the ones who were active first didn't become them? Uh, did they go off and do something else? Were they going to other conflicts instead of going home? This is one of the new questions I think this project raises that we need to look into as well. Yeah, fair enough. And I think, you know, there's always, when you're able to kind of sink your teeth in and, and conduct research over uh, a large period of time, looking at these really important issues, it leads to follow-up questions, um, you know, that, that you can explore, which is always great for the field um, because we're learning more. And at the same time, it, it breeds new questions. Um, I'd like to turn, I'm, I'm still thinking about kind of implications for, for the future here. Um, and if, if anyone can talk to, maybe we'll start with Chelsea, um, and, then, and then we'll go to Janine. What can we expect for the future based on some of the trends in your research? So um, help, out, help us out a little bit to look a little bit beyond the horizon um, and, and looking at what you found uh, in this study, what should we, be, what should we be cognizant of and looking for? I think the most important finding that we gain out of this report that we've done in the research is that the bottom line up front is that career foreign fighters versus individuals that have only engaged in one conflict, so one-off foreign fighters, as we like to call them, they actually, these career foreign fighters actually pose a greater security threat to the future. So if you think about that looking at current conflicts, the longer individuals are allowed to 
stay in a conflict and then potentially transfer to the next conflict, they're gaining the skills, they're gaining the connections. Those connections also help the broader jihadist community, so the global jihadist community, which as a security concern, that's an important thing to think of. So for me, as far as policy implications, that idea that the career foreign fighters that continue on have a much stronger effect to global jihad than the one-off individuals. So I think that's the main takeaway for me that I think for policy is very important to consider. Great. Janine, do you have anything to add? Yeah, maybe what is also very important now, I think, to realize is that now is kind of our window of opportunity to potentially affect or have some kind of effect, of effect on um, the future career foreign fighters coming out of the current conflict in Syria. Because we have seen that not all conflicts um, produce as many career foreign fighters as others. We have some nice graphs where we really see that some conflicts attract more career foreign fighters while others produce more. And I think now is really the time, um, especially for policymakers, to think about how they might want to try to affect um, the opportunities for current foreign fighters in Syria uh, and Iraq to become these new career foreign fighters. And of course, here we touch upon a very uh, sensitive topic, uh, which we all know, which is the repatriation of, um, of current fighters still in, um, in camps in the area. So I think this is really something that needs to be taken into account in terms of this, this policy discussion on whether we should uh, take our foreign fighters back. So we, for instance, the Dutch foreign fighters, if we have to repatriate them and prosecute them, or if we um, decide as countries not to be involved in, in that regard. But then we have a way higher risk, we think, of these people becoming these career foreign fighters. Um, so we still speak about thousands of people held in these camps and now really is the moment to, to see if they will become the next career foreign fighters or not. So that is, that is very crucial uh, today. So I think it's a, it's a critical point. It's one that's on um, everybody's mind. I mean, if anyone read Eric Schmidt's piece in the New York Times from yesterday, he's talking about the kind of impending disaster in Northeast Syria and some of these camps. Uh, we know that the Islamic State is poised to kind of um, continue pushing forward and potentially break out some of their fighters and their families from these prisons. So just to close on this before we move over to the, the viewer question and answer, if I am a politician in Paris or Brussels or The Hague or, or anywhere, um, is this a good news story? Is this a bad news story? Um, or even beyond kind of value judgments, what should I take away from this um, if, if I've read your study? and I've maybe been reluctant on repatriation for political issues, right? That I don't wanna be the one that takes somebody home uh, and, and something bad happens. But if I'm taking a step back from that and I'm being more responsible and looking at what's better for my country, um, what, what's the right thing to do? Does your research point to any kind of specific policy recommendations or approach for those people? And if you have a chance to brief high-level ministers what do you tell them about your findings that could potentially inform decisions that they're coming to a, you know, a breaking point that they'll need to make very soon in the next couple of months uh, before things maybe spin out of control? Well, I'll jump in on that. I think one thing, as, as you were saying before, Colin, it's something that you can, you can suspect, but it's good to actually have the numbers in front of you. It's, 
the question about returnees is not just a binary question of bring them back and there's risk or leave them out there and there's no risk. And really, this is something we should have known for 20 years since bin Laden, that, that there's a, you know, a risk of not bringing people back. What we're seeing from these numbers is that of people who are left out there or who are allowed to stay out there is perhaps another way to look at it, who join multiple different groups. Now, foreign fighters are usually cannon fodder. Um, they're usually the, the guys that can't hold the rifle the right, the right way. But the ones that stay out there, they evolve over time. Uh, Barack Mendelssohn's talked about this before. And what we're seeing is that half of them assume leadership roles and a quarter of them become top leaders of organizations. They're the ones who plan the attacks. They're the ones who direct the violence against civilians in, in civil war conditions. Um, of the career foreign fighters in our data set, the 50-something that we have, we have 9-11 hijackers. We have you know, members of the, the Rubai plot. We have people who went and became fundraisers and recruiters elsewhere. So it's a question of weighing risks. And is it the question of bringing back the guy who didn't know what to do with his gun for the few months he had it? Or is it the question of worrying down the road about the individuals who have gained experience, who have gained these connections over time? You know, we, again, we're, we're looking at a few dozen individuals. It's a small number. But if, if they're representative of what's out there, uh, and this is what we were able to find after looking for quite some time, then it looks like the career foreign fighters, the ones who don't come home, end up posing the greater risk in the long run. It's remarkable as a finding, because if you think about the time and energy and resources that states devote to targeting top leadership in kinetic strikes and elsewhere, right, they're so concerned about putting together uh, campaigns to go after these people, it would seem that if we acted earlier, they wouldn't have the potential to grow into what they later become. It seemed like an easy trade-off in terms of return on investment um, to intervene at, at this kind of a point instead of letting the issue metastasize and then um, being concerned over who takes over the leadership of, or of a group or who's a particular, um, particularly effective recruiter, bomb maker, et cetera. So I think there's a number of really interesting implications. Chelsea, did you want to chime in before we, we moved over to the um, audience Q&A? Yes, so I wanted to sort of piggyback off of what David just said and looking at what our data set found, we did have individuals that after their time in multiple conflicts ended up being involved in some way or another in, in local plots. So I think for policy and especially considering what we're going through right now in Syria and the camps and so forth and all the prisoners is that governments and nations are going to need to consider that once again, the longer someone is involved in conflicts, the more skills and connections they're going to make. And potentially, I'm saying potentially, because it's not everyone, they potentially could be a huger security threat to that nation in the future. So this leads to questions of creating some sort of off-ramp for individuals that have been involved in foreign fighting. And this is going to also be based on countries, their laws, what they're comfortable with, but some sort of off-ramp that provides access to getting off the foreign fighter and then career foreign fighter train. And we are seeing a lot of negative thoughts towards countries from individuals that have fought for terrorist organizations in the Syrian conflict. So you need to consider that the longer individuals are not allowed to have an off-ramp of some sort, and I know this is a security risk, so it is a touchy topic, but the longer someone 
is denied access to going back home and potentially facing the music for what they've done, the more negative feelings they may have towards their country, which potentially looking at the data we have could lead to being involved in plots later on towards their home country. So I think even though we don't know what any, all individuals will do, it's something to consider for the future and for the current situation that we're in. Yeah, absolutely. It gives us a little bit more, um, you know, of a, of a kind of grounding to work with the data that you guys have been able to collect and analyze. So um, we're at the point right now uh, where we're going to shift um, from, you know, the kind of talk show style interview to, to more of a Q&A from the audience. And we've got a number of really uh, important questions coming in from the audience. Um, and I'll kind of work through some of these. Some will be directed to uh, to the panel writ large and anyone can jump in. Others will be directed to, toward a specific researcher. Um, and, and I'll start with the first, which seems really, really interesting. And it's a question that is on my mind as well. Um, and it's talking to uh, prior experiences and, and the sample that you guys used, which is can the panel address the geography of the sample uh, and whether there are differences in how important or meaningful prior experiences, depending on where experience is gained or where the fighter is from. Um, does that tell you anything noteworthy? Okay, um, I'll, I'll jump to that. If you have a chance to look at the report itself, we have some, some lovely charts in it, um, including listing by conflict where you see three or foreign fighters. And, you know, this, this gets to a question that was asked earlier about uh, certain conflicts, you know, mattering more than others, and maybe counterterrorism approaches mattering more than others. What we found were a lot more career, foreign fighters whose careers began in Afghanistan in the 80s, who began in Bosnia. And there are a couple of explanations for this, right? One is perhaps those conflicts just led to more career foreign fighters, perhaps because there were not international approaches to stopping jihadis from traveling that it was easier to start your career. It's also possible that the people who, you know, their records about them, that their biographies written about them are top leaders, so they've just been around longer. So it would make more sense that you would see people whose careers started back in that time period than in Syria. But what we're also seeing though, is that we're seeing career foreign fighters in Syria tend to be people who have joined multiple groups in Syria, because we're counting that as well. Um, we're seeing an average of about two and a half conflicts, which both two and a half conflicts and two and a half groups um, for you know, our, our career foreign fighters. So we're not seeing as much travel out of Syria yet to elsewhere, obviously it's happening, uh, but not individuals who have had the opportunity to build themselves into top leaders elsewhere. We've seen career foreign fighters in Syria who came in from the Caucasus or elsewhere. We're seeing effects like there are plenty of career foreign fighters in Southeast Asia, but it seems to be you know, a lot of people are retiring to the beach. Most of them didn't seem to start there. They've all ended up there in our data set. So yeah, there are some conflicts that seem to lead to more of, a, of an outflow, more bleed out of, of foreign fighters than others. Um, I think it's, there's a strong argument to be made that approaches, international approaches in the last five years or so under international law stop requiring countries to uh, stop their citizens from traveling and by the way, to take them back and prosecute them. That's, that's our, all, everybody's international obligation. Um, probably has had a difference, but we just haven't been able to see that yet, I think. Great. Can I just briefly add something uh, to that? Please. The other, I think the other side of the question maybe, but at least what I'm thinking is also um, where do people come from? So not only where they go to, but also where they come from. 
I think there one important uh, element is again the, the policies of the particular home country to what extent they, for instance, allow people to return from uh, conflicts. Because if you have a country where citizenship is revoked, it's, it's way more difficult, of course, for a person to uh, come back to that country. So in that sense, it might be more likely that a person will go on to, um, to another conflict. So another element in this question is, of course, also can they return home? Are they allowed to? And also, can they build up um, their normal lives again? Or do they come from a country that might also be uh, in a conflict? So, of course, there's no list of countries we can say, okay, if a person comes from this country, there's a higher risk. But I think we have to take all these elements into account, including these policies at home. Yeah, I mean, if you revoke someone's citizenship and make them a stateless person, are you almost condemning them to... They have no other option. Fighter? right, where they have very limited options. Um, we have an interesting question, again, to, to anyone on the panel. Um, and I understand your, um, your, your study has been focused strictly on, on jihadi groups. Um, the entire time, as I'm reading it, I'm wondering about, about, about the generalizability to um, other foreign fighters, potentially career foreign fighters in uh, the white supremacist realm, or potentially what we might see following um, Iran's involvement in Syria, where they're cultivating this larger network of foreign fighters. Uh, and this question comes in on, on state sponsorship. So it, it's something I've worked on with Philip Smythe, where we kind of have analyzed what, what the Iranians are doing in growing um, this kind of broad network of, um, of proxies and, and foreign fighters, if you will. So the question is, is there a relationship between external states and these career foreign fighters, whether it's a provision of training, um, are they any, in any way organized beyond the groups that they're joining? So is there a hidden hand, so to speak, or in some cases, maybe a not so hidden hand uh, that alters the dynamics that we're seeing at play here? And if not, is there a potential for kind of states to, to, to maybe leverage or harness um, career foreign fighters uh, for their own objectives? Um, I'll jump into that too then. So one thing I think that you've seen, not just with jihadis, but throughout history, you've seen state permissiveness is required to cross borders, you know, people in large numbers. And when, for because of international pressure or conflict conditions, states close their borders, foreign fighter flows dry up, right? You have very committed people who still make it, but the larger numbers tend to, tend to dry up considerably. So yeah, state responses matter. Um, you know, state sponsorship can matter as well. By some counts, again, depending on who you count as a foreign fighter, um, there were potentially more foreign Shia volunteers in, in Syria than there were all the Sunni groups combined. Uh, and so what happens to them, perhaps there's been less worry because there's a sense that they are under state direction from Iran or elsewhere. Um, throughout history, you've had individuals who've joined multiple groups, who fought in Spain and Israel and, you know, Biafra and elsewhere always sort of handfuls of individuals uh, but you do get one thing that is something we debated including but and not for I think you talked about is we're aware that there are individuals who have gone from fighting against ISIS to fighting in Ukraine uh, YPG volunteers who've ended up in Ukraine and elsewhere uh, so that's something that certainly bears study as well um, returnees from from the you know from that come from Ukraine and elsewhere have become a concern ties you mentioned to, to neo-nazi groups um, so there, there's, you know, I think there's a lot of work in this area to be done, this idea that people might have 
influences. It's one thing I think is really interesting about the study of foreign fighters right now. There's been a lot of work into facilitation and, and other matters of getting people to go in recent years, less, I think, less on states' roles that, that you mentioned, um, but this idea that they can go do other things besides just fight in one place or go back home um, is something that we're going to have to be watching in the future because clearly there are these, these networks, these diffusions to other places, and they bring things with them when they go. Can I also jump in on that? So yep. looking at the conflict in the Ukraine and speaking to individuals that have gone over and, and fought in the Ukraine, one of the incentives of the Ukrainian conflict versus, say, Syria is the idea that, at least at the time, so this, things have changed a bit in the, in the recent future, but at the time, individuals could actually have somewhat of a normal life if they were a foreign fighter in Ukraine versus Syria. They could have a girlfriend, they could have an apartment, and then when they wanted to, they could go to the conflict zone, engage in fighting, and then go back and have their normal life. So I think that's something for governments to consider if they have a conflict with foreign fighters involved. That, that's a really interesting point, right? Suitability to um maintaining some semblance of what your life was like before um, rather than a far more austere version could be you know a compelling reason for someone to join or, or not join um, you know one of the things that kind of irks me when we, we read a lot about foreign fighters particularly about um, foreign fighters in Iraq and Syria is this notion that it's foreign fighters comma and women and children. And they're just kind of lumped together in this big group. And I think that it does a disservice to kind of learning more about them. Um, and, and we've got a, a question here on, on foreign fighters and their families, which I think you know, too often get, get dismissed or kind of marginalized in this broader question. Uh, and, the, and the question is, what are the challenges of foreign fighters who have taken their families with them? How has that changed the process of rehabilitation or is there any evidence that they've taken their families with them? Is there, is there any demographic information on gender um, that, that is telling? Um, and how does this kind of all come together to help inform how we should be thinking about next steps in terms of policy? Yeah, maybe I can start with that one. Um, I think in terms of, of gender, it differs quite a bit per country. For instance, the Netherlands has a really high percentage of women who also joined the fight. And when we speak about children, I think, first of all, it's important to stress that I think 80% of the children um, have been born in the conflict zone. Uh, so we speak about very, very young children. So indeed it is, we shouldn't, on the one hand, we shouldn't like bring them all together. When we speak about foreign fighters, I think it is important to see their different groups. Um, and, and with these women, I think now in the camps, a lot of these women, um, they're just with their children. A lot of men have died. So I think, especially for the European ones, as far as I know, uh, so that kind of changes the whole dynamic. Um, so it's mostly women and children who are now held in these camps. The number of, of male foreign fighters from Europe is, is way lower than, um, than all these women and children. So I think that is a very different question in terms of rehabilitation of course, than for the men. Because for the men, we can quite easily um, prove that they have, have joined a fighting group. Whereas for women, it's always harder. Like the question is, are they actually foreign fighters? Um, in our paper, we said, okay, well, we didn't focus on, on women, but we said, okay, fighters are people who join um, a terrorist organization that is fighting. But it's way harder to, um, well, to prove what, what these women have done in a conflict. 
So I think there's also quite a large fear in a number of countries that these women might come home and not be, um, not can be, cannot be prosecuted at all. I think in recent years, we have seen it has changed a bit and it's also easier now for uh, prosecution services to just prove that these women have joined terrorist organizations. So they might also end up in jail at least for a shorter period of time. But yeah, it's a super complicated uh, topic because again, they have different roles in the conflict, but they also play the card themselves of being very naive, just followed their husbands. They were all thinking they were going to an all-inclusive in, in Turkey and suddenly ended up in Syria. So yeah, I, I think we, we have to be very um, careful with these stories, uh, but there's, there's difference. Yeah, it's just a very complicated, I don't have a real answer. I'm just can just say it's very complicated in terms of rehabilitation. But with these children, I think, yeah, we, we can quite easily reintegrate these very young children if, if we think that most of them are below the age of five. And there's a lot of good research from psychologists uh, who have shown that these very young children, it is, it is not, it's not a given, but it's, there's a lot of opportunities to, uh, well, to help them back into normal situation again. So yeah, sorry, it's not an answer. It's just complicating the question a bit more, but no, it's it's honest. I mean, if these these issues were straightforward, you know, we wouldn't be spending so much time researching them. And I think, you know, in my own experience briefing policymakers, there's this desire for a silver bullet. You know, what's the profile? What's the, what's the typology? Just tell me, and then we can get to the heart of the matter. Uh, and in and in truth, they're far more complex. And I think that's what your report really highlights is that. Um, this is an extremely complex issue. There's a lot of nuance, and that's why relying on data and, and a rigorous research methodology really matters, right? Because we want to know that we can have faith in the findings that um, we are able to, um, to come to. It also, um, you know, it, it lets me think about, one of the things you guys stress is that a career foreign fighter, right, he's, he or she is going into multiple insurgencies, right? This isn't just a one-off. That's the point of, of hence a career foreign fighter. Um, and we've got a really interesting question that speaks to that, which is, can you share more about how career foreign fighters are received in the next group? So when they go from one conflict to the next, how are they received at that next conflict? Are they lauded for their potential experience? Are they looked at you know, with a wary eye because of what they may have done in their, their previous conflict, that maybe they're bringing more heat uh, or negative attention on the place they're going? Um, is there a kind of learning curve or um, almost like, uh, you know, when, when you show up to any new organization, uh, what does that look like? Is there a kind of hazing, right? A vetting process that goes along? Um, you know, are they delegitimized or do they have certain bona fides if they came from Assyria versus Olivia? How, how does that, that work? Can you talk a little bit about that at a, a level of granularity that we might not understand? I can jump in on that. So I think it's important to consider just as you were mentioning, Colin, that there is no profile. Every individual's reasonings for joining a, a foreign conflict are going to be different, just like every individual's experience towards radicalization is different. And I, to that point, the individuals in the data set all had very different experiences. Some had similarities. I will say overall, I think that going to your question, 
being able to provide skills and knowledge from a previous conflict was actually a very positive thing for the next conflict and the next group that our career foreign fighters joined. And this was for a number of reasons. It could be technical, tactical, even ideological, but a lot of them, that skill and knowledge set was an asset to the next group and the next conflict. With that being said, there are some caveats. One of our individuals that I actually um, wrote about in the bios discusses having a little bit of pushback because one conflict ended and he was looking for the next theater to join. And he mentioned to some of his comrades about, mm, I'm thinking of going to X, X country. And they weren't too thrilled with that. They didn't think that ideologically that country was ready for what this individual could could provide. So, you know, there are these antidotes that are slightly funny when you read about them because you look at it and you have to remember that these are normal people that are going about their lives and, and it's a different experience than you and I have. But for them, they they grapple with these ideas of, hmm, is it good to go to Chechnya next? Or what about Syria? Um, so it's real life and it's real life experiences and it's real life decisions. So I think that's an interesting takeaway and, and to answer a bit of your question, I can pass it over to my other colleagues. Maybe they have some input that they'd like to add. Yeah, just briefly, um, I think what we also saw in, in the case of Bosnia was that a lot of these uh, commanders from the uh, conflict in Afghanistan went there and they were kind of among the first to build up this new uh, Mujahideen network in Bosnia. So I think it also depends on the timing. When do they join? And especially, I think, if they join in the beginning of a conflict, they might be able to indeed set up new networks, new links, um, and then have a, have a very large impact. Whereas maybe if they decide to join later on when the conflict is already, uh, the foreign fighter networks are already established, they might be less welcome. So I guess it's also in terms of, of timing. Are they the ones that are paving the way and then trying to attract other fighters from other countries? Or are they trying to jump on something that is already ongoing and then trying to maybe tune it more towards what they want to do? And then it might lead to maybe more tensions with the local, um, not the, lo yeah, the local foreign fighter groups. I mean, the fighter groups that have already been established versus these career foreign fighters. And we usually see that they are, I think, quite early in, into a new conflict because they have this experience and they're often looking for new areas and new conflict zones to um, to develop themselves. So they're usually among the first ones, I think, to, to make that move. And then usually they are quite, in the beginning, quite welcomed for building up these new networks. And once they're there and they might resort to more extreme tactics, then we see that this uh, tension with population starts to rise. But usually we see in the beginning, the local population might also be still quite happy because they, maybe their fight is more internationalized, there's more attention for what they're doing. And once they find out actually who came there and what, what kind of tactics, this might change over time. Yeah, so career foreign fighters can be the equivalent of Instagram influencers as well, right? Depending on what battle they choose to join, that may sway others that are on the fence. Uh, strange way to think about it maybe, but um, and, and, and even listening to some of the things Chelsea said, uh, it, there are a lot of parallels to the civilian world, right? When someone's coming out of college or graduate school and they're saying, talking to their friends, hey, I'm thinking about, you know, maybe going to Wall Street, and you kind of get the, hmm, 
you know, versus, or I'm going to go work for a nonprofit or I'm going to, you know, do, do one or the other. There's different impressions that people have. Um, and so I, I think, so there's a really good question on recruitment. Um, and I've done a little bit of work on this. I wrote a piece, just a short piece with Charlie Winter for War on the Rocks a while back where we looked at how ISIS recruited um, people with specific backgrounds in um, graphic design and media and propaganda, right? We know that's something that ISIS really valued. So th the question is, do insurgent groups try to recruit particular career foreign fighters? For example, which skill sets are, are in demand versus others that aren't? You guys have mentioned that a lot of times um, foreign fighters can be used as cannon fodder, but I think as warfare changes and certain skills are uh, more valued than others, particularly as we look at social media, the impact that that can have, um, that's one that springs to mind. Is there a particular example of a career foreign fighter or a group that looks to, um, I, in an interview one time, I unfortunately used the term, you know, they're similar to headhunters in the way that they recruit. Um, but given the fact that it was ISIS, that had a kind of double meaning that I wasn't going for. Um, so are there ways that insurgent groups recruit particular career foreign fighters? Uh, and if so, which ones? And also just based on your research, um, what might that tell us about the future, right? Who's more valuable than someone else? If I've got enough cannon fodder, who am I special, you know, who am I specially looking for? Well, one thing that was really unexpected um, that we found in the numbers, which is more towards the beginning of the story than, than what you're asking, but I think is relevant, is that you know, we weren't counting people's prior domestic militant activity as being a career foreign fighter. We were only counting stints fighting abroad. But what we saw is that a lot of the people who rose up in the leadership had prior domestic militant experience. So we worry a lot about blowback about, about foreign fighters getting experience, getting radicalized, and then coming back and becoming terrorists. But it looks like there's, there's a real possibility that individuals who are already experienced domestic terrorists, who are already radicalized and already have the connections, are valued by foreign fighter groups and are brought in. So again, if, if you're talking about international law, about UN Security Council resolutions that require every country to stop their citizens from traveling, you know, there, there are people in Western countries or some Arab states who are traveling to these war zones who are probably exacerbating the conflict, who have the skills already, who are particularly prized. So countries should also be worrying, if we're worrying about, you know, keeping the peace in Syria, we need to stop people from going to Syria who already have the tools to, to inflame the situation. So clearly, there, there seems to be some evidence that groups headhunt, that groups, you know, use, use some equivalent of, of LinkedIn to look for skills and try to find the people who are gonna be most useful to them. We know that you know, there are people who show up in, with nothing but, I guess, if you wanna call them good intentions and no experience, and they're just saying, okay, great, well, you can, you can go engage in a martyrdom operation, that would be the most helpful thing you can do for us. And the people who have some skills, and I should say the guys, because there, there weren't women, we looked, there weren't you know, women, jihadi career foreign fighter women at this point. Um, the ones who have those skills you know, are conserved by these groups. The, the question of how that becomes known elsewhere, how do you show up in, in some other country where you've never been and say, yes, I was a fighter here, or yes, I, I have these skills. You know, how do you do that without some evidence behind you? Is a really great question. I mean, again, I, I would point to the value of networks because there's no other way somebody could just walk in and be accepted in a leadership role in these groups without various people testifying to what they had done, vouching for them, 
perhaps talking about their successes. So we need to not just look at the career of foreign fighters, but as with all foreign fighters, we need to look at the support networks. So what you're saying is academics aren't the only ones that continuously need to justify their actions on their CV, right? Show me what you've done lately. Um, and it speaks to some of the intake forms that we've actually had the opportunity to see. What are you good at? What are you used for? Chelsea, you might want to pick up on that. I was going to jump in on that is that in the case studies, there are a handful of individuals that actually went to conflicts with what we could, going back to your headhunter and job job hunting analogy, they actually showed up with letters of recommendation from their local group um, saying like, I vouch for so-and-so, take him into your conflict, which is great evidence, A, for this idea of wanting individuals that have some sort of background. Um, and B, it's just, it's just once again, going back to that real life experience and real life connection that hey, you might need a letter of recommendation to enter the next theater of conflict. Internships are in high demand these days, even amongst career foreign fighters. Um, we've got time for maybe one or possibly two more questions. Um, here, here's one on further research, which is, is there any data analyzing the factors that separate your career foreign fighters from the one-timers who go home and never participate in another conflict? And if the answer is no, we can move on. If it's a simple kind of yes or no, if there's nothing, Janine. Yeah, no, I think we, we just have to think about that. Um, I think it's a great question, but so what is the, yeah, what is the difference between them? Um, I, well, we don't know yet. I think uh, as far as, as I know, uh, we haven't really studied that in the report, but it's, it's a very, it's, yeah, it's again, the $1 million question in that sense that we want to know like who will continue to, uh, to join the fight another fight and who will leave. So again, it has to do with, can these people return home? Is there a new conflict that they uh, want to go to? But of course, there's also personality factors. Um, we also see fighters who might become disillusioned and want to return home and others, they just really love the fighting and they just want to keep doing it everywhere. Um, we had these, these statements also in the 1980s again, like Afghanistan to Bosnia, where people just said like, Jihad is now my life. I just want to keep doing it. I don't mind where. Um, and if there's a new conflict where they can more easily go to, yeah, that might also play a role. But yeah, but it's a good question, but we don't have any straightforward answers right now, I think. In, in the remaining moments, um, so uh, just a, a short anecdote. When I first joined RAND back in 2008, I was very lucky to work on um, studying counterinsurgency. Um, 2008, the budgets were big, the projects were long, the reports were long, um, and the findings were complicated. Over time, you know, we kind of moved away from that and it moved a lot more toward, how can you explain this in one page, right, with some interesting infographics? Uh, we've, we've moved a lot more toward the bottom line up front, explaining things to policymakers um, in manageable chunks. So if anyone, everyone wants to go around the horn, we'll go Chelsea, Janine, and then David. What's the one kind of key takeaway you want to reemphasize for those that are interested in the subject, maybe haven't read the report and are juggling several things at the same time, um, or maybe it's an a, opportunity to entice them to actually sink their teeth in and read the whole report. What do you want to leave us with uh, that we have to know what's essential to learning about career foreign fighters, why this whole concept matters, um, why it's going to continue to matter in the future. 
So I'll start off, as you mentioned, I think once again, the bottom line up front is this idea that career foreign fighters versus the one-off foreign fighters do pose more of a security threat, whether that's to your home country or broadly, because of the skills and knowledge and so forth connections that they provide to this global jihadist movement. With also that being said, I will mention that in, in the data and in the individuals that we looked at, especially more of the deep dive, um, Abdullah Azam's writings from the early days of the Afghan jihad are very still very prominent with the individuals that we have in our data set. So those concepts and those ideologies, the ideology of protecting the global Muslim community, the Ummah, is still really strong. And we see that in Syria as well. Definitely Hedgehammer has a great book on Abdullah Azam, so you can do the deep dive by reading that. But I think thinking about that is very important, which of course is not going to necessarily apply to foreign fighters that are not from the Sunni jihadist community. So the ones in, in um, Ukraine and so forth, it's, it's different concepts and different reasonings for going. But um, I think they're very important to keep in mind. And I'll pass it on to my co-authors. Thank you. And I, I've gushed a lot on social media about Heckhammer's book, so I'll, I'll spare you the uh, the continued. But please. Yeah. Okay. So to add to that, um, I think it's really important to emphasize again that really now is the moment to think about what to do with these fighters who are still in uh, in the area of Syria and Iraq because now might be the moment to affect the chances that they do become these career foreign fighters. And again, of course, this needs to be a policy assessment there. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer, but I think this, these kind of findings really should be taken into account when um, thinking about the implications your policies might have on either increasing or decreasing the chance that somebody might become a career foreign fighter. And again, it's not just about their battlefield expertise. It's not just about the fact that they might boost these local insurgencies, but also that they have a long-term effect, as Chelsea said, on these transnational jihadi networks. And it's really these people with this pre previous experience that really, um, well, yeah, that really give long-term kind of effects on these, on these transnational jihadist movements. So think beyond the moment of today, think beyond the short-term risk, but also the long-term risks, the ideological impact and the transnational jihadi movement in the future. I hope politicians and policymakers are listening to that. And I guess I would just wrap up by, number one, by echoing that policymakers should really, as Janine's saying, take this opportunity to engage in a, a very thorough uh, cost-benefit analysis, not just on, on the sort of the axis of return versus not return, but what not return can mean. Um, but also for, for other practitioners involved directly in dealing with foreign fighters, foreign terrorist fighters, you know, one thing that I think we've learned from this project is that individuals who are executive leaders, the ones who've joined several different groups, the ones who rise to become leaders places they've never been before after having been somewhere else, um, they're valued because they're bringing in connections, but they're also bringing in doctrine. And in the biographies that we're examining, the case studies that we present, you have people who write manifestos who write training manuals specifically saying here are the best practices from the last conflict so there are doctrines that seem to be transmitted repeatedly seems to be transmitted across decades 
but it must be fairly standard in that regard because it's the same people who are transmitting them using their own networks, using their shared experiences. So there, it's really important to learn what these doctrines are that the jihadi groups are using because that's the best way you're going to be able to counter them is by understanding what they teach as best practices for being foreign fighters. Thank you so much. Um, I mean, really just the time has kind of flown by here. I wish I could keep you guys on for, for another hour, but um, this was really a spectacular event. And so I wanna thank uh, all the panelists for taking the time to share their research uh, and for everybody at USIP and, and Resolve uh, for, for making this event happen. And then lastly, most importantly to all those who tuned in because we couldn't have done this without you. Um, so I do hope you will go and, and, and read the paper if you haven't already um, and continue to follow these researchers who are the top, uh, some of the top minds in the field working on this issue, which I guarantee will be important for years to come. So thank you so much. Um, we really appreciate your time um, and look forward to seeing you at a future event. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usrp.org backslash podcast. Thank you for listening to this event.